the evidence developed by the special counsel is not sufficient to establish that the president committed an obstruction of justice offense. Turns out that was a lie, Mr. Attorney General. You're being called well, on. I don't know why I came here tonight. By a federal judge. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, in Janesville, Wisconsin on WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow... Says me from bradblog.com, and I hope you agree. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, as we began our previous broadcast, I had mentioned some breaking news had come in just as I was opening the show, came across my uh, iPhone regarding a federal judge who had issued an unusual, direct, and as it turns out, blistering rebuke of Attorney General Bill Barr for misleading the American people about the report filed by Robert uh, Robert Mueller's special counsel probe into Russian interference in the 2016 election, with the judge accusing Barr of making misleading and distorted statements about it, about uh, Mueller's report, to the public. That came in just as we were starting our previous show, so I hadn't yet been able to read it in uh, in detail I've now had the chance to do so, and I got to tell you, with everything else going on, uh, and and I'll I'll get back to some uh, a lot of election stuff in uh, in a bit here today. Uh, and Desi Doyen will be joining us for our latest Green News report. Hello, Desi Doyen. Hello. But I wanted to make sure that this does not get lost because there's so much going on. But this is directly of a piece, it seems to me, with the complete. Crisis level unraveling of the rule of law in our government at the Department of Justice under Attorney General Bill Barr that has been playing out in recent weeks with his unprecedented interference in the sentencing of Donald Trump's pals Roger Stone and Michael Flynn which we've all sort of gotten distracted from during uh, in recent weeks because of the elections and the debates and now the coronavirus crisis. But this is a big story. And the man behind it uh, here will join me in a moment to explain why. 
A federal judge on Thursday sharply criticized Attorney General Bill Barr's handling of the report by the special counsel Robert Mueller saying that Barr put forward a distorted and misleading account of its findings and lacked credibility on the topic. Barr could not be trusted. Judge Reggie Walton said, citing, quote, inconsistencies between the AG's statements about the report when it was secret and its actual contents that turned out to be more damaging to President Trump. Mr. Barr's lack of candor called into question his, quote, credibility and in turn the department's assurances to the court. Judge Walton said he ordered the Justice Department to privately show him the portions of the report that were censored in the publicly released version so he could independently verify the justifications for those redactions, according to the great Charlie Savage over at The New York Times. The ruling came in a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit seeking a full-text version of the report as filed by the Electronic Privacy Information Center and our friend Jason Leopold of BuzzFeed News, who joins us in a minute to discuss this. The differences between the report and Barr's description of it, according to uh, the judge, quote, caused the court to seriously question whether Attorney General Barr made a calculated attempt to influence public discourse about the Mueller report in favor of President Trump, despite certain findings in the redacted version of the Mueller report. To the contrary, that's what the judge wrote. Uh, judge Walton is an appointee of President George W. Bush, by the way. Barr's public rollout of the Mueller report was widely criticized, as you will recall, when he held back the release of the report, actually the redacted report, for weeks, uh, about a month after making false claims in a memo, a statement released about the report just days after it was given to him by Mueller. He had asserted falsely that the report exonerated the president when in reality it did no such thing. Nonetheless, as The Times reports, it was still striking to see a federal judge, much less a Republican appointed federal judge, scathingly dissect Barr's conduct in a formal judicial ruling and declare that the sitting attorney general had so deceived the American public that he could not trust assertions made by a Justice Department run by Mr. Barr. Judge Walton's decision focuses on the period last spring between the delivery of the Mueller report to the attorney general, his publicly issued summary of it just two days later that drew wide, widespread condemnation, and then the release of the report itself a month later that revealed several discrepancies between the documents. Among those that uh, the judge, uh, Judge Walton, cited here, it bars obfuscation about the scope of the links that investigators did find between the Trump campaign and Russia and how the report documented numerous episodes that appear to meet the criteria for criminal obstruction of justice, echoing the complaints of many critics of Barr's summary of the report in which he suggested that Mueller found uh, not enough evidence for obstruction of justice. The attorney general issued an initial four-page letter in March of 2019. This was just two days after receiving the 381-page Mueller report. That four-page letter purported to summarize the principal conclusions from Mueller's report, but within days, Mueller himself sent letters to Barr protesting that 
Barr had distorted the findings of the report and asking him to swiftly release the report's own summaries instead, which Barr refused to do. He made the report public only weeks later after a fuller review uh, that ended up blacking out what uh, was described to be sensitive material. Among the issues that Judge Walton flagged, Barr misleadingly declared that the special counsel had not found that the Trump campaign had conspired or coordinated with Russia in its efforts to influence the 2016 presidential election and then just left it at that. But while Mueller did conclude that he found insufficient evidence to charge any Trump associates with conspiring with the Russians, Barr omitted that the special counsel had, in fact, identified multiple contacts between the Trump campaign officials and people with ties to the Russian government and that the campaign expected to benefit from Moscow's interference in the 2016 presidential election. Walton also wrote that the special counsel, quote, only concluded that the investigation did not establish that the context rose to coordination because Mueller interpreted that term very, very narrowly. In addition, Barr told the public in March that Mueller had made no decision about whether the president obstructed justice and then pronounced that Trump was cleared of those suspicions. The report by no means actually clears Trump of such suspicions. And in fact, it details at least 10 different instances when Trump appears to have obstructed justice in hopes of shutting down the Mueller report. And he even asked his own White House counsel, Don McGahn, according to the report, to lie to the public about those efforts. Barr, quote, failed to disclose to the American public, said Walton, that Mueller had explained that it would be inappropriate to make a judgment while the president was still in office about whether or not he committed obstruction crimes, given the DOJ's policy, frankly, a highly questionable one, that a sitting president cannot be indicted. The report also said that if the evidence had cleared uh, Mr. Trump, that Mr. Mueller would have said so, but he was unable to exonerate him again in seeming contradiction with the way this was all painted by Bill Barr. Judge Walton writes, quote, the speed by which Attorney General Barr released to the public the summary of special counsel Mueller's principal conclusions Remember, this was a 381-page report, coupled with the fact that Attorney General Barr failed to provide a thorough representation of the findings set forth in the Mueller report causes the court to question whether Attorney General Barr's intent was to create a one-sided narrative about the Mueller report, a narrative that is clearly, in some respects, substantively at odds with the redacted version of the Mueller report. The judge also blasted similar inconsistencies in public comments that were made by Bill Barr hours before he released the redacted version of the report in April when he said that, uh, well, no, this was, we decided there was n nothing to see here. Everything was clear. We're clear in the president, just like Mueller suggested. Because of that pattern, writes the judge, he could not look away from the fact that the portions of the Mueller report that the Justice Department was withholding in this Freedom of Information Act case mirrored 
the deletions that were made under Barr's guidance in the version of the report that was released in April. That, echoing, he wrote, causes the court to question whether the redactions are self-serving and were made to support or at the very least to not undermine Attorney General Barr's public statements and whether the department engaged in post hoc rationalization to justify Attorney General Barr's positions. And again, this is not some lefty judge writing these uh, this extraordinary condemnation, at least as I see it. This is a George W. Bush appointee who is known for handing down tough sentences in a lot of high-profile cases. According to Tierney Sneed, over at Talking Point's memo, seasoned legal experts said that they have never seen anything like the opinion that Judge Walton issued on Thursday in any Freedom of Information Act case. What stood out to the former federal prosecutors that she talked to is that Walton called out Bill Barr by name. Harry Sandick, a former federal prosecutor, told TPM, I have never seen an attorney general called out this way before by a judge for making misrepresentations. It's not unheard of for judges, uh, including Walton, to criticize prosecutors for how they've handled cases, but for the Justice Department and its top official to be accused by a federal judge of misleading the public about a matter as high profile as the Mueller investigation suggested that the, quote, fabric, the fabric of the criminal justice system was beginning to tear. Seth Waxman, a former prosecutor in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, said when a judge calls out a prosecutor for falsehoods, and this prosecutor is the attorney general himself, it's indicative of the fabric of the justice system deteriorating. In light of Barr's handling of the Mueller report and his more recent intervention in the Roger Stone case, hundreds of former DOJ officials uh, have warned that his apparent willingness to bend the Justice Department to the president's favor was putting the uh, DOJ's credibility in jeopardy. Walton's order is an indication that that credibility has indeed taken a hit. Sandick said there is a lasting cost to the DOJ when one administration pushes the department to do and say things that are inconsistent with its historic mission to seek impartial justice. Sandick said we saw this with Stone and we are now again seeing it here. Waxman, uh, the uh, former federal prosecutor, added for a judge to call out a prosecutor and say, I can't trust the represent the representation you're making undercuts the entire criminal justice system. He added that if a judge had made those kind of assertions about a low level line prosecutor, the prosecute the prosecutor in question would be referred to the DOJ Office of Professional Responsibility, which handles accusations of misconduct. Those were the kind of statements that can destroy careers of line prosecutors, said Waxman. And here we have a federal judge saying it about the U.S. Attorney General. Joining us now to discuss this extraordinary matter with a U.S. Attorney General accused by a sitting Republican appointed federal judge of tearing at the very fiber of the U.S. criminal justice system is Jason Leopold who filed the FOIA request in question, along with EPIC, the um, Electronic Privacy Information Center. Jason is a longtime investigative journalist, now at BuzzFeed News, and long known for his many landmark Freedom of Information Act requests that eventually, uh, well, famously earned him the moniker of FOIA terrorist. 
as described, I think, by the DOJ during the George W. Bush administration, if I remember correctly. Jason Leopold, my friend, welcome back to the broadcast. It has been too long. It has indeed. Great to be back with you, Brad. Uh, well, congrats on helping to stir up this mess, and frankly, <laughs> uh, you know, helping helping to out yeah. the U.S. Attorney General here for his. Uh, for the disartis- dishonest partisan operative that I believe he clearly is, that's my words, not yours. I don't want to get you in trouble. I know you're before the court. But before I ask you about this specific case, Jason, and this ruling, uh, how many FOIA requests would you say that you have filed over your storied career of doing this? I'm well over 3,500 at this point. Uh, so 3,500 requests. I've sued the government mm-hmm. 70 times. And... In fact, I just filed a lawsuit last week. So, <laughs> uh, so it, it, if you can you tell, I mean, obviously there's the you know the disparity mm-hmm. uh, between how many outstanding requests I have and how many lawsuits I actually decide to pursue. So, in other words, uh, you said 3,500 FOIA requests, uh, 70-something lawsuits. Uh, you have to file those lawsuits in cases where the government does not respond, either in a timely way or in a way that uh, you believe has been deceptive by what they are not turning over or what they are redacting? Yeah, I mean, it depends. So I'm very strategic when I decide what I'm going to go after. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the case of the Mueller report, the Justice Department rolled out this report, they redacted it, and they made the decision on what to redact. Mm-hmm. Along with uh, EPIC, the Electronic Privacy Information Center, we wanted the Justice Department to process that report in accordance with FOIA, in accordance with the nine exemptions, mm-hmm. uh, which would have allowed us to, which actually has allowed us to challenge the exemptions. You see, without a lawsuit without a Freedom of Information Act request for the actual document, mm-hmm. even though they released it, which they are still required to process under the FOIA, mm-hmm. uh, we would never be able to challenge those those exemptions. So, so we felt that this was this was a document that had such historical value that was so important mm-hmm. that any effort that we could make to further unredact that report would be worth it. And the only way to to do so. Uh, to really to to gain any traction would be through uh, through litigation. And so, when they release uh, documents under FOIA, and and you have to litigate, I, I know that uh, sometimes it's years before you even get a response at all, as I understand it. But uh, when you do, they're allowed to redact certain things, but as I understand it, but only for very certain and very specific reasons that they then have to explain to you. They have to tell you what those reasons are uh, when they include redactions. Is that correct? That's right. So there's nine exemptions under the FOIA, mm-hmm. and they would have to explain why they are going to redact a certain passage or a certain section or a page. It could be perhaps for national security reasons, for privacy reasons. Mm-hmm. It could uh, be for uh, because it would reveal trade secrets. Uh, there's uh, a number of uh, mm-hmm. obviously different exemptions that they can use. One that they often use, and they've used quite a bit in a separate case that I currently have, which is I lose the FBI interview summaries of the 500-plus witnesses that spoke to Mueller's team, mm-hmm. uh, is uh, the deliberative process uh, or attorney-client privilege. So okay. that is something that they use quite often. And in the case of, the, of, of this report that we have here, which is the Mueller report, mm-hmm. the Justice Department said what we've been litigating for nearly a year now that resulted in this opinion yesterday is the fact that, you know, 
we believe there are certain passages that can continue to be unredacted. And the government has said, nope, there's nothing else that we can we can reveal without interfering with ongoing investigations or threatening national security. So is but what you had yesterday. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. Well, no. Well, I was going to say is so in in cases like that where you get this material, it's redacted. They explain to you why this can't be released or that can't be released. Uh, and then it's a matter of, of, of you either believing or not their reasons. And if you don't believe their reasons, you then go to a judge uh, to try to force them to unredact or, or to uh, to to look at the unredacted material himself to determine if the uh, government has actually told the truth about the reasons for that redaction. That's right. And it's rare. It's very rare where a judge will actually say, hey, l- let me take a look at this mm-hmm. and, and make a decision. Because uh, the, 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 the judges that preside over these FOIA cases often give deference to the government. Right. You know, so the government attorney will go into court and say, listen, Your Honor, national security would be at risk, uh, a grave threat to national security. We can't reveal this. Mm-hmm. And they'll provide, us, provide you with uh, declarations that are written by you know, government attorneys or experts at the various agencies that will attest to that. Uh-huh. And so uh, the, judge, the judges will more or less just say, okay, I believe you. And uh, so this is, a, this is rare. And, and those other cases that I'm talking about when they're doing that, you know, that, that usually applies to cases uh, of uh, high-value intelligence mm-hmm. material, such as uh, records from the CIA or the NSA mm-hmm. or the Department of Defense. So this, 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 this is rare where a judge is is actually saying i want to make the decision you know before i give before before i make a ruling Uh and and i'm not going to give deference to the government i'm going to take a look at it and i'm going to decide you know if in fact uh anything can be released and and i'm going to press the government with some with some questions that they should answer uh uh as a result. Yeah, uh, I, that's my understanding of this, is that this seems highly unusual that, you know, normally in such cases, they'll just say, hey, the DOJ is claiming this or that, and therefore we're, we're just going to believe them. But, I mean, the judge here, again, a longtime federal judge, a former prosecutor himself, Judge uh, Reggie Walton, uh, s- suggests here that he simply does not believe the word of the Justice Department, uh, fears that they're acting at the behest of the nation's top law enforcement official, Attorney General Bill Barr, and that he is flat out saying Barr has lied in the past, or as Walton said, you know, displayed a lack of candor. He thinks the U.S. Attorney General may be lying here. Is that is that how you read this ruling? Um, not maybe lying, is lying. Uh, I mean, he, he's very clear. I mean, the judge, this is a 23-page opinion. Mm-hmm. I didn't see this coming yesterday. We've been sitting on the, we've been sitting waiting patiently for the past, you know, geez, five months mm-hmm. to see if, if uh, Judge Walton would rule on this. And, you know, just to give you a little bit of background about this case, you know, we, we sued last year, and it's wound its way through the courts. There have been several hearings in, in front of uh, Judge Walton mm-hmm. where the government has said, nope, we can't, we can't reveal any other information. Uh, there are portions of the Mueller report that pertain to Roger Stone that are that are still redacted. Mm-hmm. We want that report to be reprocessed, and now that he's sentenced, we want it to be unredacted. Mm-hmm. And the government said we'll have to wait till he's actually sentenced. And so we've been going back and forth. So Walton has already indicated he indicated last year that he may take it upon himself to review this because he wasn't buying the arguments of of the Justice Department. But yeah. what he did was, in this opinion, is that he really went back and looked at the rollout of this report. 
And he looked at what uh, the Justice Department did. He looked at the way in which Barr uh, speedily, you know, put out this memo. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he notes that in his opinion about how, how on the one hand, while he, he, he applauds Barr for trying to be transparent, the speed by which he released this and the way in which he mischaracterized this report left him feeling that he was acting, you know, uh, at the behest of, uh, of uh, Trump and trying to protect Trump. And he called his integrity and credibility into question. Uh, and uh, there, there, are, there are truly some damning, damning portions of his opinion that just eviscerate Barr and, and, and his integrity and credibility. Which is, yeah, extraordinary. And I, I wanted to add, I mean, you've had cases uh, before Judge Walton before, uh, correct? This is not your first I one. Have, I have, yes. And, no. and you've never I seen have. anything like this coming from him in the past. Brad, the last case I had before Judge Walton was when I was trying to get records out of the Eastern District of New York mm-hmm. uh, when Loretta Lynch was the U.S. attorney there. Mm-hmm. And when they made a deal to to slap HSBC, the bank, right. on the wrist uh, after the bank was uh, laundering money for drug cartels mm-hmm. um, and terrorist groups. Right. And the ruling <laughs> that Judge Walton judge gave us at the time after we went after this as, as he more or less said how dare you even question the integrity of uh of a you know the u.s attorney mm. um you know uh, we're not going to give you you know uh, the records you're going on a fishing expedition and we weren't uh we were just you know seeking right. you know uh what 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 we thought was a was important just to gain some insight into it so this is a this is this, this is the exact opposite but you- this comes on the heels of the justice department really finding itself in a situation where they are going to court time and time again over these Freedom of Information Act cases. And Judge Walton has made it clear that he has been presiding over these cases, many of these cases, hundreds of these cases. And what he has noted is that the government continuously goes into court and says, we can't do this, we can't do this, we can't do this, we don't have the resources. Mm -hmm. And so he's getting frustrated. It's not really buying their story. So it doesn't, you know, it's, it's, it's part of, this is the culmination of the Justice Department actually kind of just saying, look, there's nothing we can do, so you have to just rule in our favor. And he is actually, you know, putting them on the spot saying, well, well, I don't trust you. And, you know, what happened last month, what was revealed, is that in the case of Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, mm-hmm. they had a case where they were trying to get records about Deputy Director Andrew McKay. Right. And that's another case that um, uh, that was in front of Judge Walton. Right. And that was more or less botched. And the way in which they were they were not giving crew these records because they were saying that we're not we're not sure if he's going to be if the case is going to be prosecuted. And Judge Walton more or less suggested that um, you know are, are you lying to me? Are you lying to this court? Mm-hmm. Uh, it uh, it it was some strong suggestions in that. In, in, in that realm, so he he's he's become very very frustrated and sees this sees this Brad as politicization. Okay, and that's more or less what he's saying here is that that what the Justice Department did, what what Barr did, is more or less politicize this, politicize this report, politicize the rollout, and therefore he just can't take their word that these redactions are 
in fact, justified mm-hmm. and have followed the the law. And just to be clear, since you, you had mentioned that case uh, under Attorney General uh, Lynch uh, during the Obama case, the, the frustration that you are seeing from Judge Walton with the government this is happening during the Trump administration. In other words, he wasn't. Uh, d- this is a, d- a different sort of behavior than you saw in similar cases uh, during Obama. Correct? It is, and I think during the, the, what happened here is that you're having more and more people that are suing for rent, mm-hmm. right? And so Judge Walton has actually said, even said this last year. Look, you know, Trump came into office saying that he's going to he's going to change things up. He's going to stir, stir things up. You guys should have expected that you would be facing these lawsuits to try to get records. Why haven't you? So, so very quickly, uh, Jason, because I got to wrap up here. But the so the judge has now ordered this material. Him, he wants to see it himself in camera in his own chambers uh, to see, as I understand it, whether the DOJ is telling the truth about the reason for their redactions. I presume the DOJ is not going to fight that. Uh, That might be presumptuous of me, but under the presumption that they actually do uh, share this material with him instead of fight it all the way up to the Supremes, which they, I guess they could, if, if it turns out that Judge Walton finds that the DOJ or Bill Barr himself lied in any of this for their reasons for redacting this information, is it just a matter of the judge ordering the inappropriately redacted material to be released, or is there any penalty that could be levied against the prosecutors, against Bill Barr themselves, against whoever is responsible for misleading the public about these redactions? You know, I, I can't really speculate on that. Um, I, you know, the, I'll say this. The FOIA doesn't really have any penalties. The government often goes into court and lies. They just do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know they do. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's no real penalties. And that's one of the shortcomings of FOIA is that, you know, there's no deterrence for, mm-hmm. for violating. So I guess it's just uh, so the, that does that does happen. So I guess it's just the public shaming that happens with uh, with something like this, with a ruling and a statement like this uh, from the judge. I mentioned that the, that a federal uh, a prosecutor had called this uh, indicative of the fabric of the justice system deteriorating. There's another story in in which a, a judge has essentially sided with the Department of Justice against the White House because. This is the case. I don't know if if this is one of yours as well, Jason, but U.S. District Judge Amit Mehta, who's an an Obama appointee, ruled that the Justice Department, there was some something, some information regarding uh, the Roger, uh, I'm sorry, the um, Carter Page case that they didn't want to release. The White House said uh, we would declassify it. And then the DOJ had to say, no, actually, even though the White House put out a statement saying we're declassifying it, they never did. And the judge said had to side with the DOJ, essentially, that the White House was lying. So when this prosecutor then says all of this indicative of the fabric of the justice system deteriorating, that's a hell of a charge. 
Do you have any response to it? I mean, I, 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 I think that's actually absolutely right, and that's why this 23-page opinion is so, so important. This is a very important ruling, because what it's going to do is, 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 is you're going to see this opinion cited in other Freedom of Information Act cases. When they go to court to say that the withholding of records is, one, it's, there, there's questions about whether there's politicization uh, behind that, and that R is, is, is a person who, you know, presides over this department that simply doesn't have credibility. And look, here's a judge that put that on the record. This doesn't just disappear, Brad. You know, yeah. this doesn't go away. This is, this is in the record. Yep. This is there. This is documented. Yeah. This is, these, this is a case that people can cite. And as long as this goes on, as was what we're seeing, right? We're seeing the investigators are now being investigated. This is the, the, the opinion that they can come back to. And so when you look at what Walton said and how he laid out his argument, mm-hmm. remember that Walton's only been attorney general for just about a year. It was only a, a couple of weeks, a few weeks, after the Mueller report was released. That was his first big yeah. uh, rollout there. And so he has started from that day to show how Barr has really damaged the reputation of the Justice Department by his public statements and why he cannot be trusted. And that is going to have a ripple effect as it relates to other cases where people are trying to get documents. Yeah, it sure that is. could be damaging. Yeah, and, uh, you know, things had already begun falling apart a few weeks ago uh, in the Roger Stone case, and we all got sort of distracted by elections and Super Tuesday and everything else. Uh, so this is just a, a, a slap-in-the-face reminder of just what the hell is going on and the corruption that is uh, spiraling inside the Department of Justice right now. Jason Leopold, investigative journalist. You can find his work at BuzzFeedNews.com. Uh, BuzzFeed you can find him on the Twitters at Jason Leopold as he's uh, stirring up uh, crap on your behalf. Uh, <laughs> all over the place. Hey, thanks, Jason. I hope to talk to you again soon. Hope it's not as long next time that we hear from you. Definitely not. Thanks, Brad. I appreciate it. Thank you, brother. Okay, this I, I got. I mean, this is all pretty scary, uh, and as if you need uh, more to be scared about, frankly, right now. <laughs> True. But once again, I think this serves, or it should serve, as a reminder to us why this November's elections are just unspeakably important. Yes. I, you know, no matter who wins the Democratic Party nomination. So let's pick up that ball next on the Bradcast. Uh, I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. <laughs> Two 
soon? <laughs> Maybe. Well, I don't know. It, it shouldn't be. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, keep your eyes on the prize, people. Uh, to that end, two interesting points, at least, in this new survey that is out uh, yesterday from Public Policy Polling, or PPP, one having to do with the uh, Democrats' uh, critical fight to take back the U.S. Senate this November. Remember, no matter who gets, uh, you know, no matter who wins the, the, the Democratic nomination, if they are lucky enough to take back the White House, if Mitch McConnell is still in control of the U.S. Senate, it doesn't matter what that president, what that Democratic president might want to do. Mitch McConnell will block all of it, including all of the federal judges. If there are any vacancies still left by the time we get to uh, January of 2021. So two points, one on the Senate. Uh, from this poll. And uh, we had talked about in our previous show about the reported possibility now that the popular Democratic Montana governor, Steve Bullock, may jump into the U.S. Senate race, even though he said he wouldn't before. He might now do it. We'll find out in just a day or two uh, to hopefully try to unseat the Republican incumbent, Steve Daines. Uh, and the other part of this uh, survey on the uh, Democratic presidential primary. So let me start with that one as uh, brought to my attention by Daily Coast blogger uh, WTP Video. This is taken from the uh, PPP's release of their new survey data. They write, PPP has been arguing that the key to this fall's election is whether voters who oppose Trump come together around the eventual Democratic nominee and new polls in Maine and Arizona exemplify that, they write. In Maine, voters who are undecided in a Biden-Trump matchup, uh, presuming Biden wins the nomination, uh, so they're undecided uh, who they would vote for in a Biden-Trump match. Those undecided people uh, support Bernie Sanders, 58 to 3. OK, so they're big Sanders supporters, uh, but they're undecided if the race comes down to Biden and Trump and voters who are undecided in a Sanders Trump matchup. They support Joe Biden, 56 to 8, huge numbers as well. So PPP argues if they just voted the same way in both matchups, in other words, against Donald Trump, then Biden's lead would grow to 13 points over Donald Trump in Maine and Sanders lead would grow to 14 points over Donald Trump in Maine. They say you can do a similar sort of analysis in Arizona. Voters who are undecided undecided in uh, Biden Trump give Donald Trump just a 6 percent approval rating to 57 percent of voters who disapprove of him. Voters who are undecided in a Sanders-Trump uh, race give Donald Trump just a 2% approval rating to a 68% uh, disapproval rating of Donald Trump. So if the undecideds in both cases, in a Sanders-Trump race or in a Biden-Trump race, if they're undecided who they would go for, uh, most of them are voting against Trump. The reason they're undecided is because they either don't like Biden or they don't like uh, uh, Sanders, but they definitely in both groups don't like Donald Trump. If the undecided voters, if they voted based on whether they approve of Trump or not, and they don't by huge numbers, then Biden and Sanders would each come out ahead by four points in 
the previously red state of Arizona. Democrats win back the state of Arizona 52 to 48 if the current undecideds vote the way they're feeling, which is they hate Trump, vote against Trump, whoever that may be, whether it's Biden or Sanders. So if I understand this correctly, the undecideds in Maine, if they all decided to vote against Trump, no yep. matter who the Democratic nominee is, yeah. they would win by, if Huge. the Democratic would Huge. win, by about 14 or 13 yeah. points. Yeah, and whether it's Biden or Sanders. Right, and the same would the same idea in Arizona, mm-hmm. that they would win by at least four points. You got it exactly right. You. Uh, So uh, PPP goes on to write, there are not enough voters out there who like Trump for him to get reelected, period. His only path is for Sanders backers to refuse to vote for Joe Biden or for Joe Biden backers to refuse to vote for Bernie Sanders if their candidate of choice does not win the Democratic nomination. So if they vote for the Democrat, the Democrats win. Donald Trump can't win. Not enough voters like Donald Trump in order for him to win. It's going to require Democrats, people who would be otherwise inclined uh, to vote Democratic if uh, their their preferred candidate, whether it be Biden or Sanders, if they stayed home. That's the only way Donald Trump wins. Now, they say uh, that the race is going to be a toss up, even if the anti-Trump voters don't fully come together. It would still be very close. And there still may be, maybe a chance that the Democrat could win. We saw that maybe chance in 2016. How did that work out? But they PPP says that if all of these Democrats who are undecided, if they come together, that this might not even be a close race. It might be a landslide over Donald Trump this November if just folks can come together. That makes sense. It totally makes sense. Is there any chance that they actually will come together? Well, obviously, we're several months out still. And so much can happen between now and then that can obviously turn off voters, as we saw, as you reminded us, in 2016, when very well-timed bombshells that are misreported in the media uh, about the Democratic nominee could turn the tide and make it too close like it was so that there's just enough fiddling with the numbers that you could have Trump win after all. Well, this is just one of the reasons, though, that I have been uh, critical of the candidates in the Democratic race who have come out. And and it's one thing to attack your opponent on their policies um, or at least, you know, explain why your policies are better than the other ones. But, uh, you know, when they start attacking them on personal levels, when they uh, use the type of attacks that Republicans will be all too happy to take, to pick up, to take up what they say and put it into a commercial against whoever the Democratic nominee is, I think that's crazy. And uh, no matter who the candidate is who, do- who, who does it, whether it's Sanders or Biden or anyone else, that is just crazy if you give a damn about this country. And if you give a damn about this planet, as Desi will remind us uh, <laughs> shortly here. Oh, yes. Uh, so that's one thing I wanted to get out. The other is these uh, these numbers in the Senate. They also uh, polled Senate numbers. And here we've got some very good news for Democrats. Uh, currently in the main Senate race, uh, Sarah Gideon leads Susan Collins, incumbent Susan Collins, 47 to 43. So the Republican will lose in the main Senate race if these numbers are right, if the election was held today, by four points. Susan Collins is finally out. In Arizona, Mark Kelly is leading uh, Republican incumbent Martha McSally 
47 to 42. So Mark Kelly wins by five points. And that's the former astronaut, Mark Kelly. That is. Uh, married to uh, the former Congresswoman. Gabby Gifford. Thank you very much. <laughs> Uh, in North Carolina in the Senate race right now, according to PPP, Cal Cunningham, who won his primary race uh, against the more progressive uh, uh, candidate on uh, Super Tuesday, Cal Cunningham leads the Republican incumbent Tom Tillis 46 to 41 in North Carolina. By f- that's five points in North Carolina. Uh, John Hickenlooper. Leads Republican Colorado U.S. Senator Cory Gardner 51 to 38 in the Colorado Senate race. That is how many points? 13 points. That's currently all four races. Maine, Arizona, North Carolina and Colorado. The Democrats need just four pickups to take the uh, to, to, to take, take the, majority. the majority back. But remember, Doug Jones in Alabama is uh, fighting a very difficult, challenging right. race right now, trying to hold on to his yep. seat. And I guess that would be against Jeff Sessions, who I understand is in a runoff now with some weird guy <laughs> that the Republicans have, have coughed up. Yeah, like a hairball. <laughs> hairball. Yeah, well, we'll see if they actually we'll see who ends up winning that uh, that runoff. But, yeah, in Alabama, in a presidential year, it might be hard for Doug Jones to stand, uh, to hang on. That's why I was citing uh, the importance of Steve Bullock uh, up in Montana, a Democratic governor who won on the same ticket uh, in 2016 where Donald Trump was able to take the state of Montana by 20 points. So we will see if Bullock gets in. That could also be a game changer. So I know it's very early. I know we've got a bunch of months to go here. I, I know there's a lot of stuff that will happen probably within the next hour that could change all of this. <laughs> but for now, hey, it's been a rough week. There's some good news for Democrats uh, if those numbers hold. And we have a long way to go, as I said, before November. But I know there are a lot of folks who have been bummed out over these uh, past few days, this past week. Elizabeth Warren dropping out of the presidential race or they're bummed out that Joe Biden has taken away the front runner status of Bernie Sanders. Or there are those who are still concerned that Bernie Stan- Sanders uh, could still end up winning the nomination. Add to that, everyone's terrified about the coronavirus. Everything is horrible. I get it. But there are some good there is some good news out there for Democrats. There is potentially uh, a light at the end of the tunnel. So I just want to say, hey, people, keep your eyes on the prize. Go back, you know, if you need to, go listen to that segment with Jason Leopold. If you need a reminder, and you probably don't, for how bad this is getting under this presidency. And remind yourself just how much worse and terrifyingly dangerous the Department of Justice will become if Donald Trump is unleashed by winning a second term. I know we got a primary fight to, to still duke it out, and that's fine. Uh, but let's keep our eyes on the prize, people. We have got a country to save here and, yes, a planet along with it. And for that, Desi Doyen, you're up after this quick break with our latest Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, 
Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. So we got so busy on uh, this uh, past week with the Super Tuesday and the disastrous uh, problems at the polling place in in uh, California, here in Los Angeles, down <laughs> yes. in Texas, everywhere else. We had to bump your Green News report on our previous uh, broadcast. Yes, we did. Sorry about that. That's all right. We will f- correct that right now. But first, just a reminder, on Tuesday... Folks at the polls are going to be doing it again. It's a not-quite-super-Tuesday in Idaho, (laughs) Michigan, Mississippi, Missouri, North Dakota, and Washington. Don't forget to vote, people. That's it. Let's get to it. Our latest Green News Report. For the first time in more than 240 days, there's no bushfires in New South Wales. Australia's record bushfires are finally out. As new study warns, they're going to get worse. Climate coverage by corporate news media still falling short. Tropical forests losing the ability to absorb carbon. Plus... February 2020 was the second hottest February on record. All of those stories and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. And we have ended the war in American energy. It was a war. And we're up here and we're doing it. And for those of you that want to hear it. We don't. Thank you. Shut up. Please. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, it seems like every month, month after month after month, you're telling us this has been the hottest month ever recorded. Yes, most of the time. But hey, February 2020 is bucking the trend. It was only the second warmest February (laughs) on record. I know, I feel better now. Yep, it was the second warmest February on record globally since record keeping began in the mid-1800s. That's according to the European Union's climate agency, Copernicus. NASA and NOAA are likely to announce similar findings in coming weeks. Both the U.S. and Europe just saw their warmest winter on record. And because the second hottest February follows the hottest January on record, that puts 2020 on track to potentially be one of the top two hottest years ever recorded. And that is remarkable in a year without an El Nino to boost global temperatures. Mm. Well, it is remarkable. All we can do, I guess, is keep letting people know. Yep. 
But many Americans still do not hear much about climate change on the nightly news. According to a new analysis by Media Matters, corporate broadcast nightly news shows did increase their coverage of climate change by more than 60 percent from 2018 to 2019. That's good. Yes, that is good. But even with that improvement, the total broadcast news climate coverage amounted to less than one percent of their overall content. That's less than four hours total over the entire year. Well, it's not all that important, I guess. It's just the end of human civilization as we know it. Well, there is one bright spot. In 2019, PBS ran more segments on the climate crisis than ABC, CBS, and NBC combined. Because they are supported by viewers like you. And also the oil companies. In Australia, officials this week declared that devastating bushfires have finally been extinguished in New South Wales eight months after they started, killing dozens of people and causing billions in damages. So the bushfire season is now eight months long? Yes. This week, a new study by scientists with the World Weather Attribution Project confirmed that man-made global warming fueled Australia's record season. They concluded that climate change made Australia's devastating fire season at least 30 percent more likely, and they said that was a conservative estimate. They warned that the type of weather conditions that drive bushfires will continue to get worse as the planet warms unless society takes action to reduce emissions. CBS meteorologist Jeff Berardelli explains. We've already increased a degree since pre-industrial, a little bit more than that. If we see one more degree Celsius of warming, extreme fire weather like this season in Australia Mm -hmm. will be four times more likely in the future. And we could see another degree of warming by 2050, so it's only three decades away that it would be four times more likely uh, to see this kind of fire activity. Also not great news, tropical forests are losing their ability to absorb carbon. Intact tropical forests are a crucial carbon sink, removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. But researchers at the University of Leeds, tracking 300,000 trees over 30 years, found that the ability of tropical forests to absorb carbon emissions is now declining decades earlier than had been predicted due to higher temperatures and droughts, which can slow growth and kill trees. And as tropical forests absorb less carbon than predicted, it will require reassessments of global carbon budgets and national emissions targets. Finally, a bit of good news. Wells Fargo Bank has become the third major U.S. bank to announce that it will stop financing new oil and gas projects in the Arctic, including the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Wells Fargo also said it will no longer back or facilitate transactions for mountaintop removal coal mining projects. Good. The bank joins Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan as the latest in an emerging global trend of banks declining to participate in the dirtiest fossil fuel projects and projects in fragile areas. Well, what took them so long? Yeah, I know. I should be glad they're doing it now, right? Right. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget you can download our reports anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, iTunes, or Google Play. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. You know, 
We've been giving a lot of kudos to uh, big uh, big banks, big oil companies lately. Well, uh, Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan, I think uh, BP, Goldman Sachs. Yeah, yeah you know, qualified. Who, uh, what good happened news. to you, Desi Doyen? <laughs> Who got to you? Who hey, you know, you out? baby steps. I Congratulate see. them on their baby steps for doing something right for right. a change. Uh, speaking of which, there was uh, you know the market over the past week has been up and way down. Uh, because of the coronavirus fears, oil companies in particular are taking a, a big hit. Oh, yes. On Friday, oil stocks plunged about 10 percent after OPEC failed to get Russia to agree to production cuts because demand is dropping all over the world. And they're afraid that there's going to be an oil supply glut, which will cause prices to drop even further because demand has dropped so much and is likely to drop even more due to the spread of coronavirus. Well, I was going to say, is that why it's dropped? Because yes. of the coronavirus? Yes, because China is idling factories and these uh, countries that have infections are starting to contract and uh, stop things like, you know, conferences mm-hmm. and, and other things. The that South we- by Southwest conference was just canceled down in Austin. Exactly. For the coronavirus. So, uh, you know, people may hear that and they, uh, well, there's sort of uh, two sides to the oil prices dropping. Uh, one, that's good because it hurts the oil companies. Uh, I have no problem with that. I don't mind them being hurt. On the other side, uh, people are, you know, consumers are delighted. Oh, the oil prices are down then we can the cheap gas. But uh, that means that people tend to drive more. So a drop in the oil prices, while it's bad for the fossil fuel companies, uh, it's also bad for the planet, is it not? Because people tend to burn more uh, fossil fuel. Right. And so people were already buying more SUVs because gas is cheap. However, with the drop in actual economic activity, I don't know whether we're going to see that same rebound yet in whether or not people drive more because gas prices are so low, especially if, if quarantines take hold, then they won't be driving They won't anywhere. be driving? Okay. We'll keep our eyes on it. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. Thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. By the way, uh, already seeing some dirty tricks in some of those upcoming primaries I mentioned. We'll get to those on our next thrilling broadcast. Until then, my thanks also to my guest Jason Leopold of BuzzFeed News and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's broadcast or any other, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com or if you heard it and you liked it, download it and share it with your friends. That's all free and is made possible by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support this 100% listener-supported program. You can drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com and on the Facebook.